What is going on, everybody? Hopefully you guys are all doing well out there. That is right. We are back again on the Sports Card Show podcast. We are in our 11th year. That is right. Our 11th year. I can't believe when I started this podcast, I was 26 years old. Seems like a long time ago. Um, but not a lot has changed uh, in, in terms of who I need to thank for this episode, and that is you and you alone that are listening right now. So I just want to thank you, whether you're on a jog, whether you're at work, whether you're commuting, whether you're kicking back and sorting through cards or whatever you decide to do as you listen to these shows, just want you to know how much I appreciate it. And while I do apologize for the large gaps in between the shows, uh, as you guys know, I'm always honest with you guys, and um, that is not going to change anytime soon, and it, uh, for not any bad reasons, uh, not that I'm actually in, I'm probably more invested and more in the hobby now than I have been over the last 11 years. I have more cards for sale, I have bought more cards, I've I buy almost, or I try to buy almost, we'll talk about that on today's show actually a little bit. I try to buy almost every Topps product, but um, what has changed, especially the last few years, is um, I have, now I have two kids. So as of two weeks ago or three weeks ago or so, I'm already forgetting my kids' birthdays. Uh, I now have two kids, uh, hopefully stopping there well, because real estate's expensive out here in California and and my real estate can support about two kids. And so... Um, it's it's my dream, my goal, to stay, quote unquote, unemployed, so I can spend every amount of time I can possibly can with my kids before they think I'm a, uh, an idiot podcaster who didn't do anything in his life except for watch Laker games and record podcasts and fondle baseball cards. So once they figure that out, I'll probably have a lot more time to record shows. But in the meantime. I will be um, bouncing around with them. And so I apologize in advance that the next probably several years will be like this. But hopefully my kids are successful in school and in business or whatever. They, I don't know. They don't have to be in business. Whatever they decide to do, they don't need me funneling them checks and money and cars and houses, which I won't do. But anyways... Just letting you know what's going on in my life. Um, but hopefully I can still add some value as you're listening to the show. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's show. I'm going to talk about a change in strategy at Check Out My Cards. They had some fee changes, if you're aware of this. Um, th this was made, I think, the first of the year. They changed fees. So cash out is not 20%. It's 10% now. Um, they have a, a, a transaction fee now. So you might think, oh, God, I'm quitting. Uh, no, I have changed my strategy on checking my cards. In fact, I am going to invest more money to the side, actually. So we'll talk about that. Talk about grading companies. This actually comes from a listener, somebody that asked me this question. And so I'm going to answer. I know that it's something I've talked about on the show. I don't think my opinions really changed about grading companies, but this, the way they're, the it, it just seems like they're, their business is booming, and some are doing better jobs than others keeping up with it. And so we'll talk about that. 
Talk about the Tops 582 Montgomery Club. You can tell I've stacked some of these topics up uh, over the last few months. Some of these are older. But just wanted to talk really briefly about the Tops 582 Montgomery Club. If you're not aware of that, it's a club, quote unquote, I mean, I put it in quotes, but it, you know, I had to pay to get in the club. I don't know how cool a club is that I got to pay to get into, but the Tops 582 Montgomery Club cost, I think it was $200, and you were guaranteed a certain amount of cards over the course of a year. And so we'll talk about that. I don't want to talk about it too much right now because I don't think it's a long segment. So we'll talk about that. We have some lawsuits. Dun, dun, dun. Um, We've got a lawsuit from a collector, it sounds like, but also who is also a practicing attorney, has developed a lawsuit. And if you've listened to the sport, I know my brother has published, I think, some of these on my feed. And so some of you that uh, may not subscribe to my brother's podcast, which you probably want to do because he was just at the Tops Industry Conference and I actually just listened to one of the last shows, the show where he had Mojo Dan from Mojo break on, and there was the DA Cardwell guy. There was a guy from GTS. There was Rich from Layton. Gosh, is that his Layton Sports Breaks? I don't know. Sorry, guys. I don't know. Um, Layton Cards. I can't remember the, his breaking breaking company's name. I think it's Layton Sports Cards or something, but. Um, you can tell how many times I've bought into a break uh, recently, but but I thought it was fascinating. The Leighton sports cards guy literally started selling with just baseball cards, and I thought that was. You know, I think he said he did that for a couple of years. And I think that's something not to. I always turn somebody else's comment into a pat on my back and say I I invented that. I didn't, but um, I know that's something that I certainly have suggested on the past in the show. Something I would definitely suggest. Um, if you were just starting out in sports cards, uh, I don't care what you're doing, whether you're collecting, but certainly if you're breaking, certainly my advice is from the selling side. If you're collecting cards and you got unlimited budget, buy whatever you want. But I would say focus on something. Just focus on baseball cards. Just do UFC breaks. Just do um, Panini breaks or Topps baseball breaks or uh, 30 case breaks or just do uh, personal boxes or just find a lane first, especially if it's one of your first businesses or if it's not something like a side income or kind of more of a side hobby. If you really think, hey, if I really put some time and invest in this, I can make a business. Um, I thought it was interesting that Rich said they started out just doing baseball. And I think that's a, a really good it's a really good idea. I think, I mean, if you want to take, and then my example in the hobby with sports card radio, it started out just as a podcast. I didn't even have a website. Uh, I didn't even own a sports card radio.com when I first started the podcast, but it started morphing into these things and, um, and away you go. So, and I think Dan from Mojo Break said he started with 400 something dollars and they bought one case and they were doing a couple breaks a month, like a couple breaks a month. Now they probably do, you know, maybe even dozens of breaks in a night. But if you, I mean, if you're trying to go from zero to sixty, those are the collectors I worry about, and definitely the business, quote unquote, business kind of people that I worry about. If you're trying to go from zero to sixty um, without kind of le- learning the game a little bit. 
and getting your feet wet a little bit and taking your time with it, I think that you can uh, you can learn something from that. But anyways, I listened to that podcast. I was like motivated. I was like, look at these guys. They literally they are literally the success story uh, within the hobby. Started with just a couple hundred bucks, a case of cards or two, and now they are they they are as important probably to the supply chain of sports cards as anybody. Not that they're not replaceable. It's not like there's be ten other breakers willing to step in and buy what they don't pre-order. But the fact that they've done it for so long and, and started out as kind of a slow grind and kind of built it up definitely can be inspiring uh, to, to everybody out there. So check that out if you haven't. Go over to sportscardradio.com and check that out. If you visit sportscardradio.com, you will have visited it more times than I have in the last month or two. But um, I have listened to the podcast. So that that is that's one thing I've been able to keep up with. And I do listen to Mojo Break. Mojo Break has a podcast too. I listened to one just the other day. I was doing some work outside and I listened to one uh the other day. So talked about some cool stuff. I can't remember. It was like baseball prospects and some other stuff. I don't get to keep up with a lot of the sets that are just coming out. And so it's nice to if you you know, I think there's a couple other podcasts out there that go more in depth on what's coming out. As you guys know, or if you're just picking up this podcast for the first time, I don't talk about that kind of stuff. Okay, occasionally we'll talk about that stuff, but today we probably won't. I'll talk about the lawsuit. I think I went off on a tangent after I I talked about this, but we'll talk about redemption card lawsuit. And by now you probably heard the lawyer interview or you know a little bit about it. And I'll tell you what I think redemption cards are. And I'll give you a hint. I think they're a Ponzi scheme. Maybe not under the the Wikipedia definition of a Ponzi scheme. May not be that these card companies are doing it, are aware of it, or really want to run their business like that. But when it comes down to it, redemption cards are a Ponzi scheme. And I'll also give you, I, I, it was actually my baby was being born when some of this lawsuit stuff was coming out and there was some discussion on Twitter. So I didn't really get to discuss it a whole lot, but I had a couple people say some things on there and it's like, I definitely need to talk about that. Get that off my mind. Finally, I'll give you year end eBay and Amazon updates and also kind of a little bit of the changes that I've made kind of going forward there. Give you a little update on selling because, like I said, I just busted a case of Top Series 1 baseball. I just busted a, a box of hoops basketball. I buy. I just got a, uh, I think it was like 179 pounds. It was mostly like figurines and like model toys and stuff like that. I think I had some supplies and stuff in there. Not a lot of cards, um, really much at all. But I just got like... Yeah, like 180 pounds of, of product that I'm selling on Amazon. So it was about four, I think it was like three or four thousand dollars worth of stuff. So um I'm I'm like more invested in kind of buying selling. I would say the hobby in general, and I think the hobby expands out to supplies, board games, Pokemon, other kind of products as well. Kind of the broader hobby, not just sports trading cards. So I'm pretty uh pretty involved. And if I wasn't uh, you know, raising two kids, I probably would have been at this tops conference and might have sprung the money for the Mike Trout party as well. So, for any updates on that, I'm sure you can listen to the Mojo Break podcast and others. 
that are out there and that attend it. So let's move right in to my first topic, and that is changing strategy on checking my cart. So here's, I don't know if it's necessarily really a strategy change. It's just kind of maybe putting a little bit more dollars behind it instead of having it be kind of a side hobby. Put it, put a little bit more money into it so I care about it a little bit more. So I think on Check Out My Cards, basically what I'm going to do is probably buy a little bit more product to open. And I know that sounds a, a, a little crazy, but there are some side advantages to having an account where I'm buying sports cards um, on a regular basis. And so a little bit of it, I'll definitely pick and choose my spots where I send cards in and I'll base that off of sales I have of cards in the past. I also noticed that baseball prospects, Bowman, that kind of stuff, it just seems like the floor price on a lot of these guys has just gone up. I, you know, I think we see, and it could be true that this happens with football too. We just had the Tom Brady rookie sell for 400000 I was watching CNBC today, and there it was on their little new, news blurb. So I was like, oh, that was cool. Uh, you know what that might do is raise the price of every other quarterback. Because if Tom Brady can sell for – I know Tom Brady is 400,000 times more successful than almost any – person that has ever played the position of quarterback, but it's not like Patrick Mahomes is not a great player or Aaron Rodgers or any of these other quarterbacks, Andrew Luck, that are in the league right now. So I think what it could do is could bump up the kind of floor price on quarterbacks, although I'm bidding on quarterbacks right now. Uh, a quarterback who, who was a rookie last year, Josh Rosen, been bidding on his cards. Man, you can pick up cards. I haven't won any yet. Like I'm trying to really like, get the low, low, low price, and I think I've got plenty of time. Football doesn't start until August. I heard some rumors he 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 they might try to trade him or something like that. I just don't think that will happen. Um, and even if it does, it won't interrupt his cards, uh, I don't think, tremendously. So, um but people are dumping off Josh Rosen cards for like 20 or 30 bucks. And so that's kind of my rationale is like speculating a little bit more. I've had some success with that buying baseball. I, sh- I wish I would have done a podcast because I would have told you guys buy baseball in November and December. And then come January and February, it starts to sell very quickly. And so I did that and I've actually sold, I, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of time, so I probably only bought 20 or 30 carts, but I think I've sold seven or eight of them. So they sell very quickly. It seems like the, the floor price, you have to get used to paying a little bit more for these cards. It used to be some, you know, the top guys, Harper and Strasburg and uh, whoever else, you know, and it, that has done well, usually the top guy, the, the top stud is always valuable. But I've seen now it's like the Dominican player that no one's ever heard of or the guy that's been in double A for three years, his card is still worth something. And so uh, I, I don't know what it is. The odds of these guys making it to the major leagues and being good players has not gone up any. OK, they haven't had expansion in the MLB. The MLB isn't very popular outside of the a regional basis in each individual team. But I think you've had some other events in the hobby. You've had some other cards. The uh, Mike Trout card sell to Vegas Dave. Uh, 
You've had some other significant baseball card sales over the years that I don't know. I think that some of that is, I think just, oh, Otani. That's who, you know, you had Otani and then you had Aaron Judge the year before where you had these cards that were selling for a huge amount, especially Otani. You know, you had card Otani cards where it's like if you pulled one, your life would change. Okay, that's that's when people really get, really pay attention, I think, to the hobby. It's when you can open a $40 box and pull a $45,000 card. Um, and that happened, maybe not exactly to that extreme, but you, you could have done that last year early on with Otani. And so people are really getting fired up for these prospects. So long-winded, you know, kind of check out my cards, kind of prospects strategy. I'm going to start focusing more on that because I think that's where the heat and the strength in this market is. So in order to get those cards, you kind of have to be out there actively buying either on eBay or you have to kind of buy the unopened product. And not that I'll get a lot of it or that this will be my only strategy, but it's certainly something I'll probably put a little more effort and definitely put a little more time into. I'm definitely already actively building up a list for football quarterbacks. I'm not going to buy any running backs or any wide receivers. Quarterbacks can play, as we've seen, quarterbacks can play until a very old age now. Tom Brady is not the only one to play. Uh, I mean, he's played a long time and he looks amazing. And so does his wife, but um, I guess if I look like that when I'm Tom Brady's age, I'll be very thankful. So, but I, I, I just think playing the seasonality of sports cards, nobody cares about football, probably a good time to buy football. Two, three months ago, nobody cared about baseball, good time to buy baseball. And I think you can be doing the buying and selling throughout the year. The second layer of the check on my card strategy and really the one that will take it to the next level is to get more cash on the site. Be one of the few accounts that has five figures ready to go. So I need $10,000, dollars $20,000, um, not necessarily in the account liquid, but probably at least five or six thousand in the account and then another five or six I can put on at any time that I can just allocate maybe from another business or or whatever you know allocate kind of the cash I invest each month uh, you know I can shift it to check out my cards because I think really that's where the value in that site is occasionally you will have port sales come up for a very large amount of money and there's very few people in the world looking to drop five to $10,000 or more on some cards. And certainly I check out my cards, that market is slim. That's why I can talk about my strategy very openly before I even really implemented it on the show because having five dollars or $10,000 is a challenge. Even if you wanted to copy me, if you could not get five to $10,000 together, it'd be very hard to do. But if you do have five to $10,000, certainly a, in my opinion, I mean, you can take that money anywhere. You can go to eBay with it. You can go to private shows. There's lots of way you can, you can put up ads like uh, Mr. Mint almost and just say, I'm buying. And you can have a fistful of cash in your face and uh, say, I'm buying. You know, uh, that's not a bad strategy, not a bad, bad business model at all. I, I, I don't think at all. Get the customers to come to you. 
And essentially, you know, you're doing that a little bit on checking my cards. Be able to acquire large amounts of cards for very large amounts of money and be willing to, one, have that money, but also if you buy, you know, 10,000 cards on Check Out My Card, it's going to take a really long time, like two or three years for you to sell it. So it's going to be a really long-term investment. It's a very, very small amount of people that are willing to do that. And I, I think it's, I honestly think it's worth it. I honestly think sports cards and the way Check Out My Cards is set up, that the cards on the site inherently become a little bit more valuable. And cards themselves continue to appreciate, not that that's really what I'm hoping for, but they don't appreciate, they certainly don't depreciate down to zero, at least under any normal economic circumstances. So that's my check on my card strategy, is really just take it up a notch. I don't think the days of sitting there buying cards one by one, two by two, is, is not going to do it. And even buying a port here, a port there, it, you know, it will stay a hobby that way. And I won't really care about it. I'll go stretches where I don't even log into the account. But if I buy $1,000 worth of, of Top Series 1, open it and send it in to check on my cards, which is exactly what I did, I, I, you know, honestly, I'm not going to make a lot of money. So I opened up a case of Top Series 1 baseball. Actually, a case of regular and a case of jumbo. So there's a lot of cards. I still have a lot of cards. I still have a lot of cards sitting around. But I was able to unload, I don't know, I want to say about a dozen cards on eBay, including a $300 Otani. I pulled a $150 Red Sox autograph, another Red Sox autograph that I think was 70 or 80 bucks. I pulled a couple other cards that sold in that $40, $50 range. I don't remember exactly what I got back on eBay, but it was probably four or five hundred, at least five, six hundred dollars in revenue. Then I sent six very quickly, like literally all in one day. I opened this stuff up, listed the, the about a dozen cards on eBay, and then I sent about six hundred and fifty cards the very next day in to check out my cards. And I think one advantage I had was it's very it was very snowy and very cold throughout the United States when Top Series 1 launched. And some people didn't get their boxes because it was so cold that FedEx dev- deliveries and stuff were delayed. And the other thing is, a UPS, I can get stuff to check out my cards in two days. And I don't have to, it's not priority. I can literally send UPS ground to check out my cards and it gets there in two days because they're not more than a state away. So... I got my cards into checking my cards very quickly. Almost, you know, I'm like one or two other people might have the card. And so I've been getting like really good prices, I think. Um, I, I'm obviously selling the cards, pricing them to move. But I'm getting like, you know, I, I was getting like $10 for base cards and stuff like that. Like Not like regular base cards, but for inserts and stuff. Inserts that are valuable and will certainly sell for a couple bucks, but not 10 so I think I've gotten back. In fact, I'll pull it up for you right now. This is amazing podcasting. We're in our 11th year here at the Sports Card Show podcast. And I still do it to this day. Very little preparation, very little notes, very, very little forethought. 
I, t- I tell you what, I do have notes. What I do do is, is have a little notepad and I try to keep the topics on there that I want to talk about because by the time I end up coming around and recording a show, I tend to forget about them. But I want to, the last, I'll wrap up this segment on checking my cards. I, what I want to tell you is my exact, what I wanted to do is bring up my seller stats here on my check on my cards and I want to show you, I just want to tell you how much I've, I've gotten back revenue wise. So I've sent in, I sent in 650 cards, but only 584 have been put on check on my cards. I've sold 96 of them. So about a fifth of them, it's not bad. Or about a sixth of them, it's not bad. My sales, $191. So not, that's not, it's not too bad. If you factor in, I've gotten five to 600 back on eBay, and then I've got another 200 here. I've gotten maybe, you know, raw, you know, gross sales, kind of raw sales. I've gotten back seven to 800 bucks. And I pay, I think I paid about $1,100 for the two cases total. So it's not something, obviously, I'm going to feed my two sons with. It's not something I would really recommend, but the byproduct is I do have a crap ton of base cards, and I'm going to be able to essentially repackage those and get maybe close to 25 to 50 cents a card. So in that sense, it's actually a pretty uh, pretty good deal because I'm basically getting those base cards for very little money. If, you know, if I break even, I basically look at it that I get those base cards for free. And if my product is successful, again, I don't know if I, my hope is to get 25 to 50 cents a card, uh, but who knows how quickly that will occur and if my product will even be successful. And I'm talking about kind of a repackaged product for Amazon. And so we'll see if that works out. But it's a it's a decent strategy, and I just wanted to that, that you know that was kind of my check on my card strategy, but also a side strategy with opening up a case of Series One. Um, the other thing I looked at is Series One was selling for about cost, so I literally could have sold it and made probably lost uh, definitely lost money after fees, or I could have opened it, experienced some upside. There's definitely, if I hustled those cards a little bit more, put together more sets and team sets, I could have easily made money. But all I wanted to do was rip, put the put the 10 or 12 mo- most expensive cards I pulled, put those on eBay, put everything else in a box, and I sent it to check out my cards. Because I don't got time to spend more than a few hours on breaking a case. Now, if you're one of these young guys out there and you got no kids and you don't got a Mercedes and a BMW, then maybe you can you have more time to uh, uh, spend on this, but I got to make some money. So I got bills to pay. So I can't spend all day fondling cards, but that's certainly something you could do. Moving on, grading card companies... They're always backlogged, or at least uh, Beckett is. I think they still are. Like, what the hell's wrong with Beckett? Like, how do you how do you stay backlogged for like a year in a business? Like, do you not know what you're doing? Is the the job market that hard? I think they're trying to hire people mo- mainly in in Texas or Fort Worth or Dallas or wherever Beckett is located. Like, how, how do you not have your backlog solved? And so I think that's the problem with Beckett. PSA, 
PSA has carved out a niche for older cards. So if you're grading older cards, and by older, I mean, I don't know, pre-1989, call it. I don't know if that's a hard and fast rule, but seem seems okay for me. I think if you have some of the 90s, 19, not 90s, but I think Jeter was, yeah, Jeter was 93, I think, or 92, one of those. Definitely send those into PSA. Certainly any 60s and 50s and 70s and even 80s baseball, I'd send it to PSA and not even not even think about sending it into Beckett. Wouldn't even think about sending, a, especially a 60s, 70s, 80s baseball card into anybody except for. Tail end of 89, you get Griffey rookies. Yeah, you could send those to Beckett. Got no problem with that. Maybe there's some, some Bond stuff. Bond stuff, not super collectible, but... A lot of that 80s stuff is not super collectible except for Griffey, really, or late, late, late 80s. But mid-80s and back goes to PSA, period. Period. More modern cards? You, you, you know, your Josh Rosen uh, dual patch and your Baker Mayfields and your um, Luca Doncic, I think his name is? Uh those go to BGS, and that's the pro- that's the problem with Beckett having a backlog. Is I think they're backlog because there's just a lot of cards coming out, and people are sending them in, and they certainly haven't you know solved their issues operationally. But there's no reason why Beckett should be backlogged for this long. It just does, doesn't make any sense. Why don't I mention any other grading card company other than PG, BGS and Beckett? That's because I think you're wasting your money, period. Why, why do you need some other? I mean, SGC, maybe. Okay, the only way I would send a card to SGC is if they, their fees were way lower, way lower than Beckett and, and, and PSA, and I don't think they are. Especially if you start doing volume with PSA and, and Beckett, they, they, especially, I, I mean, PSA kind of puts it out there for you. So no way would I send to anybody but those two. And it's not that I know anybody that works at those companies. It's not that I trust those companies. But grading is marketing. Honestly, SGC or some other company, some startup authenticator could probably authenticate cards better than Beckett and PSA. There's probably a startup that could get made or, or some other company that might even be out there right now that could do a better job than both these, card compa- both these grading card companies combined. But what they don't have is marketing. And, that, and, and that's what, and trust, I guess. But I, I don't really call it that. It's not trust, okay? It's just marketing. PSA and Beckett have marketed their services. And and granted, their services has been on the market for a long time, but so has SGC. SGC's been around a long time, too. They've just marketed themselves better. They've had better funding. I don't know. PSA is a public company. They need to raise money. It's out there. Beckett had a magazine and kind of an industry presence already. Could that change in the future? Absolutely. A, a company like Check On My Cards could become a third player in the grading card company. 
Because check out my cards. I already got your card there. They could apply some computer science shit to it. And I say computer science shit with like the utmost respect. And they could grade cards, but probably at a fraction of the price. And a much faster turnaround. So, and maybe far more transparently than Beckett and and, uh, PSA do. So, but for now, if I was pulling cards out of National Treasures or Flawless or whatever it is, I'd send it to Beckett. Now they have a backlog and there's all this shit. You know, I'd have to look into that and see, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to send him a football player and get it back two years later when he's out of the league. Or like my brother, I think he said he graded a Chris Stapps, sent a Chris Stapps in to get graded, and he didn't get, and it was like when Chris Stapps was on fire and didn't get it back until Chris Stapps was hurt and basically like traded. So, got to think about that with the backlog, okay? That's why I think it's a little bit safer if you're going to play the grading game. I think I'd rather play it with these dead and old cards. I'd rather do it with that. Because who cares how long it takes for me to get my 65 mantle back? They keep going up in value every three days. So the longer it takes, I'm probably gaining money. I personally don't don't see the need to add that extra layer into my collection, whether it be my collection or my selling process but I'm sure there's some ways to make money out of there. I don't think people are sending these cards in just so they can rub their hands on them. Definitely think some value is created when you get these cards graded. It's just not something, you know, I I just see it as something else I have to do and worry about and time up. I I don't have the time for that. I have time to buy the card and list it for sale. and, and, And when it sells, I go buy another one. And if I can get a good deal on a case, a product, I can literally get it, open it up, separate out the good cards, put everything else in a box, and done. But if you're if you're more, you know, if you got more ambition or more time, you set up a webcam. I should be posting all these videos on YouTube and all that other crap, and uh, podcasting about it and putting links and all that other stuff about it. So um, s- something you can think about if you want to take it to the next step. Moving on, Tops 582 Montgomery Club. Again, uh, this is a club, I don't think it was really heavily promoted like on social media or anything, so if you didn't catch it, you missed out because it was a club, I think it had a limited uh, window where you could sign, it might even have a limited number of subscribers that could get in. I think it's full. I don't think that this is something you can join if you're listening to it now. It was 200 bucks, and they guarantee you some sets and stuff. The, pro- the reason why it made it to my topic list was because I paid Tops 200 bucks. I, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I don't think I even got a thank you email. I didn't get like, you know, something like cupping my nutsack, basically, was what I was looking for. Because I literally, it was literally like Tops, the Tops 582 was like one page on Tops' website, they didn't have a video, they didn't have a slideshow, they didn't have anything other than like a single 
page on a website that told you very vaguely what you got for $200. It's like a couple sets. To me, it sounded like a good deal. But whenever you pay somebody like $200 and get it's for like kind of air at the time, like literally I was paying tops $200 for air. You kind of want like a thank you email cupping my nutsacks a little bit. Just pu- put them in your hand and, and just shake them a little bit. That's kind of what I was looking for. A thank you email. You're wonderful. You're amazing. Welcome to the club. Could have sent me like a, you know, I guess through the mail, could have sent me like a sticker or a patch or something that made me feel a part of the club. You know what I mean? Like you join a club and you expect shit like that. I didn't get that. What I did get was briefly after forking over $200 was an email asking for $1,000. So 582 Montgomery set winners had the unbelievably amazing privilege of paying tops $200 for nothing, literally nothing at the time, for basically I'm basically paying tops $200 for a promise to send me cards later, which we'll talk about redemption cards in a little bit is a really stupid thing to do. So I did that and literally it wasn't that many, it wasn't long at all after Again, I didn't get a thank you email cupping my nuts. I didn't get a t-shirt or a hat or a patch. I got an email saying, I have the distinct privilege of buying a $1,000 box of cards from Tops. Not a $100 box. Not a $10 box. A $1,000. And the other thing... This was like a few weeks before Christmas, like literally a couple weeks before Christmas. So you already got the $200 charge by your wife because you might be doing a lot of shopping already. You could say, oh, I bought myself a gift, a $200, 582 Montgomery Club. Wife's like, okay. But then it's ruined because a week later, it's like, no, you need to spend 1000 get this box. And so obviously I didn't spend the thousand. I think they sent it. They had trouble selling them. I think they sent out another email a few weeks later, but I just thought that was, uh, thought that was interesting. What they did send out a few weeks later, which kind of, uh, you know, not that I'm super upset. 200 bucks is no big deal. I just thought it was like, and I, and I don't really, you know, not to blow it, but I, I don't really care about this that much, but I just thought the optics of it would make for an interesting podcast. You know, you pay $200 for promises and then they ask for another thousand. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. It's like, you know, it's like you're, you're, uh, it's like you have a family member that they comes to you asking you for money and you give them 200 bucks for, you know, and it's supposed to pay his rent or pay his electricity bill so he can turn on his electricity bill and then come to find out a few, four days later, he didn't spend it on the electricity bill. He actually blew it on some marijuana. And then he shows up at your door asking for a thousand because now his electricity off and his gas is off. He has a little bit of marijuana, but 
He's smoked most of that too, so he's gonna he needs a thousand. But anyways, I just thought the tops five eight two again. Like I, what I was gonna say is they sent something out, a set of cards. I think it maybe it was about twenty cards. There was an autograph. I listed those cards. I literally had them. They weren't out of the top, the the bubble mailer for more than fifteen seconds before I had them on eBay, and I was getting like. There was like Ronald Acuna's in there, and there was uh, so- Juan Soto's in there, and a couple other guys, and I was getting $10, $15 a card for them, and a couple other cards I got 5 $6 for. So I felt like, wow, they're going to send me basically four sets like that throughout the year. I thought I think it's going to be a good value from that perspective. I got an autograph. I think it sold at maybe $25, $30, but I saw autographs some collectors got. You could got you could have gotten a Juan Soto autograph, and I think those are selling for a couple hundred bucks, uh, at least right at the time. So... Good value in that sense. So um, we'll see what happens. Moving on. Next topic. I got to take a sip of water for this one because I might get a little heated. Get the vocal cords warmed up for this because maybe close the windows, hide the wife, hide the kids. Because I might get a little fired up about this one. We got a lawsuit going on in the hobby, if you haven't heard. There's a collector who's very upset with Panini America. And there may or may not be one coming for Tops as well, but for now, we've got one going for Panini America. And that is on the topic of redemption cards. As you all know, anyone that opens modern-day product, and you don't even have to open the product. Like, I, I was like, I'm shopping for Josh Rosen cards now, so that's kind of the example I'll give you. I didn't see a lot of redemption. He's pretty good about getting his autographs in, or maybe they just got them all at once. I don't know. But I didn't see any redemptions for him. But what if almost all his cards were redemptions, like some players? Or the vast majority of them are redemptions? I could totally see how a collector could amass a large amount of redemption cards, whether it's you're opening the product yourself, you're just opening boxes and you're getting them and you're sending them in. That's how some people get them. But hey, if you're a fan of the player, if you're a fan of, you know, the guy went to maybe the college you went to, or maybe you knew the guy in high school or something, or you're just a fan of the team, not every team gets a top rookie every year, but maybe your team did. And it just happens that that player is a redemption. And so, yeah, I could see throughout just one year of one season of collecting, you could amass a very large amount of redemption cards. And whether those redemption cards are worth $10, $15 at the time or hundreds of dollars or thousands of dollars at the time is irrelevant. You paid for that item. In some cases, it's the box and the box on the very front. Guaranteed. Two autographs. Guaranteed. Talked about on the last show. What the hell does that guarantee mean? Nothing. So the companies give you these redemption cards. And and again, we all know what happens, especially in football. The running back, you pull it in week three. Pull the redemption card in week three. The running back gets the start. Rushes for 100 yards. His card's triple. You're like, oh... He's the next Jerome Bettis. I'm going to send this in to Panini 
and get it back. I might even be able to BGS slab it and then I'll make, I'll be, by then it'll be worth $10,000. Well, what happens? Six months, 12 months goes by. This guy's in the middle of a football season. You think he really wants to sign his cards for Panini? Yeah, right. He ain't going to get to that till afterwards. And by then, he's either hit his girlfriend, he sprained his, his knee, or a lot of time in the NFL, what happens? The guy rushes for 1,000 yards and, oh, in the second round in the NFL draft, XYZ team takes a running back. Or he rushes for 100 yards in week three, and then in week seven he gets a concussion or blows out his knee and he's out for a year. So your redemption card was worth one value at one time and then often goes down in value, as we know, uh, like most things in the world, not just baseball cards, okay? Most things in the world go down in value. Almost everything we buy goes down in value, so let alone baseball cards. <coughs> the fact that some of them go up is irrelevant. And collectors are caught in this mess because as the attorney appropriately identified is the vast majority of these redemption cards give you a time frame on the front that is full of shit. Four to six weeks or whatever it is. Eight to 12 weeks. Yeah, right. And there is nothing in writing anywhere that describes the process of what happens after those redemption cards after 12 weeks or after they're unfulfillable or after a year, after 12 months or 24 months. I saw screenshots, guys waiting five years, six years. Are you kidding me? What other product have you ever bought in your life where it's taken five to six years for it to get to you? And we're, sometimes we're talking about cards that are worth hundreds or thousands of dollars. And to me, it doesn't matter. I don't care if you're waiting for a Jamal, nobody's heard of him anymore, football player or Patrick Mahomes. I don't care what you're waiting for, redemption-wise. It doesn't matter. If I was waiting on, you know, like, to give you an example, I bought some paint locally. The orchard's all closed down. The paint I buy was sold at orchards. It's gone. I had to go to another store. They don't carry it because it's like $75 paint. Nobody comes through the door and buys it. So they had to order it for me. If I don't get my paint, I'm going to be pissed. Am I going to get on Yelp or do anything? No, I'm just going to call my credit card company and get my money back. I tell you what, if I bought some Panini shit and I didn't get what I thought I should get, I would call my credit card company. Or something. I'd call Now I think I'd call a lawyer. And so we've got a class action lawsuit. These class action lawsuits, I'm not an attorney, certainly wouldn't want to be one. Maybe I'd want to be an attorney, but I wouldn't want to do all. I know I have a couple friends that went through law school. It sounded like a, like a really, really hard time. A lot of studying. 
Okay, way more studying than I've probably done in my whole life. So certainly not something I'm interested in. But, so what I do know is class action lawsuits take a while, okay? They, they, they tend to drag out for a very long time. If you are a collector and you are upset by this, find an, find an attorney, find a lawyer. Especially if you have not gotten the appropriate responses and the appropriate compensation from Panini or Tops or any of these companies. And especially if we're talking about large sums of money, thousands of dollars. I'd figure out what you can do and get 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 it done. That is because I believe redemption cards are a Ponzi scheme. Because if you think about how they work, I don't watch enough group breaks. I don't participate in enough group breaks. I do know I opened up a case of Series 1 and a case of Series 1 Jumbo, and I got one redemption card. To me, that is acceptable. Now, obviously, if that redemption card was for a... Uh, you know, Ronald Acuna and uh, you know, Triple Jones dual autograph to one. And, I, it, you know, 12 months goes by and Topps has, has barely, even, barely even contacted me about it. I've had to always contact them about it. The, the, my, my perception of getting that one redemption was certainly changed, but from a number standpoint, opening up essentially two cases and getting that many cards to have only one redemption, not a bad thing. I'm not on here trying to say, let's eliminate all redemptions and the hobby, you know, should go, 100% get away from them. That's not really what I'm saying. I'm just saying, if we're going to have redemptions, let's treat them with the respect they fucking deserve. Because there's money behind each one of those redemptions. And what these card companies are able to do is maybe not necessarily like a product like Top Series 1, but some of these higher-end products where you got the, like, the vast majority of the top-end cards or high-value cards are redemption cards. That's a Ponzi scheme. Because they're literally taking money in and they're going to take that. I guarantee, this is why oftentimes collectors complain. You know, I've got, you know, a Jerome Bettis, just say a Jerome Bettis redemption card that I've been waiting for for two years. And I've seen Jerome Bettis in five other products live. Why haven't you been able to fulfill this redemption? That's a Ponzi scheme, guys. That's what's going on. They took your money for a redemption, Jerome Bettis, and then went out and made six other ones. And now, in order to fill your Jerome Bettis thing, they need to sell another group of quote-unquote investors, get some new money coming in through the door. The way they get new money coming through the door, issue a bunch of more redemptions. Take that money, try to backfill and get rid of all the customers that are banging down your door, and you start the whole process over again. I think the, the attorney estimated there was well, an, I think he estimated over 100,000 collectors that are waiting for 
a redemption. And if we placed a value on that, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of dollars. And all you have to do is put Panini's address in Google Maps. Their headquarters is not this luxurious spot. There's not going to be Bentleys and Mercedes and Maybox out in the front. This is not a company with millions and millions of dollars sitting around. Do they generate revenue? Of course they do. But I guarantee you, if Panini had to fulfill their liability of every single redemption card, that'd put them out of business, period. Probably would put Tops out of business. And don't let anyone out there fool you that it's your fault. Oh, if you, bu- if you buy 60 redemption cards, it's your fault. Maybe you should stop buying Panini. Guys, that's a, that's a load of shit. That's one of the stupidest things ever uttered to me on Twitter. Was that it could, it's really your fault. If you've got all these redemptions with Panini, that's your fault. No, it's not. I easily explain how a collector could amass a lot of redemption cards and only be collecting for a very short period of time. And again, dollar doesn't matter to me. If you have $500,000 worth of outstanding redemptions or $5 in outstanding redemption, I treat those both the same. In both, of my, in both situations, the company has done you wrong. And to some people, $5 is a lot of money. Think about a kid that pulls, gets to open maybe one box a year. Think about a kid that opens a cu- maybe a couple packs a year and pulls one redemption card and sends that in and gets treated like shit for three, four, five years and never gets to see that card. Imagine that, one, just one, let alone 60 So don't let anybody think it's your fault if you pull a redemption and these companies dick you around and either don't communicate with you, don't offer you anything, are not transparent about the process, lie about the process, have no FAQ page or any of this laid out. You literally have to figure it out yourself. just hopefully will get cleaned up. Hopefully. I don't think one lawsuit is going to clean it up. What you need is people running these companies with a brain. And, you know, understanding that this redemption, the longer and longer you continue the Ponzi scheme, eventually it unravels. Why do you think almost every card company has gone busto? It, 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 I'll give you a hint. It isn't because sports haven't and sports cards have gotten unpopular. Okay, sports and trading cards have, have continued to grow in popularity. Do trading cards sell as well or as a mainstream as they were in the 80s and 90s? No, but that was a brief period of time. 
They weren't like that in the 70s and 60s and 50s either. And these companies don't need redemption cards. I just looked at a, I, I follow Pearl Jam. They have a, a charity and they put up really nice items that go for a lot of money. And I, I'm, I'm often bidding and I'm never, I've never won, but I've bid on quite a few items. And so I follow what they list and they have an auction up right now for three boxes of Pearl Jam trading cards. No autographs, no memorabilia. Nothing but base cards of Pearl Jam. And the auction's at like $1,300. You could have bought these cards. My brother has talked about this on his podcast. You could have bought these at the show for, for you know, not that much. A couple dollars a pack. These were $1,000 boxes at the shows. Most of you, if you're listening to this right when it comes out, are enjoying Heritage, a product with, you know, yes, the hits are what people are looking for, but there's a lot of bass in that product. There's a lot of bass in Top Series 1. Trust me, I know. Don't need hits, 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 hits to drive the hobby. 24 hours a day. You sure as hell don't need to create a Ponzi scheme where you're issuing essentially IOUs for these redemption cards, but then taking that money and going issuing more IOUs and then fulfilling the IOUs that you have in the past. That's a Ponzi scheme. That's what redemption cards are. These companies knowingly make these cards of these athletes knowing, eh, we may not get this back. But luckily, we have collectors out there on Twitter that shame other collectors that, oh, if you have 60 redemption cards, that's your fault. If you're a kid and you buy three packs a year and you happen to get a redemption, uh, that's your fault. Suck it up, kid. It's a load of crap. The other comments I had, when I was discussing with these people on Twitter, I mean, Twitter is like, I, th- to me, there's not any in-between on that site. It's either you meet very brilliant people. I have followers and people that follow me. I'm like, wow, this guy listens to the show? It's like, damn. And then it's, this guy's a fucking idiot. Okay, there's, it's never like, oh, this guy's, eh, this guy's okay. It's either he's a fucking moron or you're a, a genius on Twitter. Unfortunately, the fucking morons really outweigh everybody else. And I had people telling me, oh, pulling a redemption cards is, is like going, I literally had somebody tell me this. Pulling a redemption cards is like going to Pizza Hut and, and getting a tummy ache. Someone told me that getting a redemption card is like going to Pizza Hut and getting a tummy ache. And I was, I was trying to think about like, okay, so I buy some cards or I buy a pack of cards, or I buy the card, I want to buy a Josh Rosen autograph of a certain kind, and it's a redemption, so I buy the redemption. Get nothing else, nothing else, just buy the redemption. And I put that into the computer at Panini. What have I gotten out of that? Absolutely nothing. I don't even get a fucking tummy ache. If I go to Pizza Hut and pay for a pizza, they give me a pizza. Whether or not that pizza gives me a tummy ache, 
or fills me up and satisfies me or gives me heart disease or whatever, at least they gave me what I paid for. Panini and Tops and all these companies with these redemption cards are not even giving you what you pay for. On the front of the box, it says two guaranteed hits and you pull a redemption. Did you really get two hits? If it says one-on-one bat knob of Derek Jeter and it's been four years, I, I don't know about you, but I don't know how many game-used Derek Jeter bats there are. <laughs> well, where are they going to find another De- Derek Jeter uh, game-used bat knob to put on my card? So if it's been a while, I might not get that card. I don't care if you have 60 of those outstanding or you have one. Be extraordinarily painful. Obviously, as we go up in value and rarity with these cards, the more and more criminal it really is. It really is criminal what these card companies are doing. If you get a redemption card, it should be very, very clear process outlined. And these companies really should be cupping your nuts sack. If it says 8 to 12 weeks or whatever it says on the card, redemption-wise, and it's been 12 weeks, you literally should get an email like at 4 a.m. that morning saying, oh my God, we're so sorry it's been 12 weeks. Here are the reasons why. It could be a candy mail. Here are the reasons why. Here are some of your alternatives. You can be a great customer, and we really appreciate it if you wait. And for waiting, here's a fifth, you know, here's a 25% coupon for Panini.com. We are so sorry you waited. We almost never give out coupons greater than 10%. But since we are so sorry, here's one for 25% off and free shipping. And then every few weeks, that customer, it, it just should be an automated system. Every few weeks, that customer should get an email. Every single time, it should be, thank you, I'm sorry. Here are your options. Most collectors don't know this. I had people say, oh, just collect football, collect basketball. You know, it's like, it's like, nah, or go to the other company or whatever. That, that doesn't solve anything. That doesn't get me my 60 redemptions I'm waiting for or five or whatever. So it bugs me. I think collectors out there should do whatever you can to make as much noise about this. You paid for this. This is your money. These are your cards. Demand that they give you full value for them. And if it's been a long time, they really should compensate you even more. And if any of these stupid-ass idiots that work at these companies are, are listening, figure your fucking shit out. Make a fucking FAQ page. God damn, spend a fucking two hours and do that. And all the questions you get, put it all on an FAQ page and make it easy to get to. Create an email funnel. So after 12 weeks, after 36 weeks, after XYZ weeks, you contact somebody. You contact the person waiting for their redemption. 
and offer some help, offer some assistance, give them some options. And for God's sakes, maybe throw them a discount code on your website or something. Or instead of the 582 Montgomery Club, call it the 411 or whatever. I, I, you know, I've been waiting for my redemption for 24 months club. Almost make it like exciting to get to that, like, oh, I've been waiting for redemption 24 months. That means I get a free set or something. I don't know. I think that'd be kind of cool. Where it's, here's my redemption card. If it, if it sits here for 24 months, I'm guaranteed this. If I take that guarantee, then I have to maybe, you know, take the Gary Carter sticker for my redemption. But uh, I think that's what Tops does anyways these days. I, that's what I've been hearing. That for a lot of the, lot of the more common redemption, Tops will just clear it out for you. And I really think that's what the company should do. They shouldn't allow customers to build up. Customers shouldn't build up this many redemptions without the company approaching that person and trying to work it out. And if the guy's stubborn and he wants Kobe's autograph, well, go get fucking Kobe Bryant's autograph on it and stop putting him in other sets until you take care of these guys. It's a joke. No other, no other company works this way. Nobody does. And people wonder why these card companies are always for sale. Always putting out Bloomberg articles and whatever. We're for sale, we're for sale. And they never get bought. This is why. Somebody's like, ooh, good business, good cash flow, exclusive license, cool, all looks good. Oh, wait. You have a database of 60,000 people waiting for cards? Oh, shit. And I have to think, think about a redemption card, too. So you're waiting for a redemption card. That card probably isn't even made yet. So they got to make the card. That card then probably has to get shipped to Panini. I doubt the people making the card send them to, to Victor Oladipo or, or LeBron James. So those cards have to get shipped to Panini. Sure, if you're sending big cases of cards, it's not you know probably negligible the amount per card you're paying. But those got to get shipped over there. That card has to be fondled by an employee that's probably making too much money at Panini. And trust me, these guys aren't paid very well, but they're fucking idiots. They don't even, they're not even worth minimum wage. Like their idea of like marketing a set is like a blog post. <laughs> at least with Tops, I've seen like David Ortiz like promoting a set or two. And they've got these transcendent parties and things like that, which I really think are just kind of a form of marketing. But anyways... And 5A2 Club or whatever. Shouldn't give Panini any ideas, but that card has to be fondled by a Panini employee and then sent to Magic Johnson or or LeBron James or whoever's gonna sign that card. That's gotta cost some money. You probably have to pay LeBron or whoever's signing that. Then LeBron's gotta send you gotta LeBron's not gonna go to the UPS store and send the cards back. It's gotta get sent back. Then it's got to get sent out to the customer. We've probably gone through about $20 worth of shipping cards uh, and shipping costs right there. 
Just the one out to the customer, FedEx, UPS is going to be 8 to $10. Easy. And then all those other time that card has to be fondled and handled and packed and shipped. So somebody looking to buy these companies, that's what they're looking at. They, they don't care, oh, I got to pay this prospect $8 to sign. and they, That's irrelevant. It's how much would it cost just to, just to complete the process we're talking about. I would guess it's probably over $100 a card if you include the signature and the royalty and the time invested in customer service and all this stuff. It's a lot of money. These companies waste fooling around with these damn redemption cards. And it's also why nobody wants to buy these freaking companies. They're, it's, oh my God, you owe 14,000 customers a million dollars, $2.5 million worth of cards. Nobody wants to be in that situation. I'm sick of it. I'm glad there's other collectors out there that are that, that are firing up the lawsuits. Is, is anything going to get done? I don't know. I mean, the these you honestly never know with these lawsuits and and things like that. Is it worth is it worth doing and worth going through? Absolutely. Certainly if you're an attorney yourself and you want to put the resources to it, I think it is. Because I think if any, if you present redemption cards correctly, I think that's the challenge is get this in front of a judge or a, uh, you know, a jury. I don't think, you know, it's not going to go in front of a grand jury or anything like that. But get this in front of a judge or an arbitrator and I guarantee you they're going to see a lot wrong with the redemption card process. From the fact that they promise it in a certain time frame and, and they've broken that promise to the fact that they promise, say, a Russell Wilson card or whoever it might be, Odell Beckham Jr., and two or three years later, that guy still hasn't signed. That's a problem. And hopefully, you know, and I just don't buy the argument. I don't buy, number one, the argument that it's your fault, that if you have these redemptions, somehow it's your fault. You should have switched to tops or should have switched to football or hockey. Fuck that. That's stupid. That's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. Another thing I don't buy is that, oh, it's... You know, it's just like a tummy ache or it's like your cell phone bill or, you know, it's like these things. No, it's not. On the fucking front of the box, it says two hits guaranteed and I got one. It's not the fucking same. We're talking about a thousand dollar card in some cases. Or we're talking about the example like I gave. The kid buys four packs all year, gets one pack for his birth, get a box for his birthday. And I mean, you guys know what it's like being a kid. It's not like you got money flowing in and shit. You're going to open up cards a handful of times a year. And, and, and yeah, the odds of you getting a redemption card might be pretty good. And you might get one. And you pu- pulled it before you were ever in puberty. And by the time you get the card, you have like four kids. 
It's ridiculous. I'm sick of it. Don't expect anything to get done about it, but do expect that Sports Car Radio will be around to talk about it. Once that happens, since we've been around 11 years, we are not going to slow down. We're going to keep going. And I'm going to move on to our final topic, at least uh, planned topic. You never know. We might throw a Make America Great Again segment in there right at the end. But I wanted to give you an update very quickly on my Amazon and eBay sale. Off the top of my head, on eBay last year, did about 20, 21 grand. I'd say the profit margin on something like that, probably similar to my Amazon, probably in that 15, you know, 10 to 15% range. So not huge money, but not a lot of time either. And a lot of times what, what I use eBay for is for like inventory clearing. Maybe I get 12 of them and it kind of looks on Amazon like I might only be able to sell eight. And instead of kind of holding on to that inventory for a really long time, you know, you run through it a little bit on eBay. You also get customer returns. And you can't really, you can sell those maybe on Amazon, but I don't really, I, it's not really the experience people are looking for on Amazon, but on eBay, yeah. You know, if the, if the binder costs $35 and all that's wrong with it is the guy opened it, you can still get 15, 16 bucks, which is about what your cost is. So I'm able to recoup a little bit of my cost. The final thing on eBay is baseball cards. You know, you pull a hot card, one of the big cards or whatever, and instead of sending it in to check on my cards, some of those things are probably better off just dumping off on eBay. You're probably going to get a little bit better price uh, for that. So that's what I've used eBay for. For Amazon, I did 80, I set a goal of 100,000 in sales. Towards the end of the year, I realized I wasn't going to hit it, but I started to, started to change my strategy a little bit, less focused on sales. I'm glad I set that goal, and I'm glad I tried to push for it. I did, you know, I, I set a goal of 100,000. I, I got to 80,400. Actually, I was at 81,000. Uh, I had about $1,700 in returns, but that number's a little, little deceiving with the returns on Amazon. Some of them go right back into your inventory. The person didn't open it or whatever. Um, and then, like I said, if the person opened it or it was damaged or whatever, it gets sent back to me. And, and 99 times out of 100, you can list something like that on eBay and get close to your cost back or at least recoup a little bit. So that return, and especially on, I think I had, I had 4,700 4, orders exactly. So out of 4,000 orders to only have an $80,000 worth of sales to only have $1,700 in refunds is actually pretty good. I had 69961 in costs. Really call it 70, 70 Gs. I made 10400 This is not 100% accurate. There's actually quite a bit of cost that I don't have. I would call this more like my gross income. So off 80000 in sales, I got gro- a gross profit of... 10,000. There are some other operating expenses here, inventory expenses, credit card expenses, things like that, that definitely would take this down another point or two. I probably made, I'd say between seven to $8,000 in profit on Amazon. Now you might ask, actually a really good question to ask was how hard did I work on that? And I estimated I worked only a few hours a week on this. Um, if you count all the time I'm checking my stats and check, kind of repricing stuff, 
definitely more hours involved in, in that. But that's kind of the fun part. And there's probably kind of an addiction to like selling something. It's actually, I actually probably spend more time analyzing and looking at my Amazon business than my websites. And my websites make, oh God, 10, 15, 20 times more than my Amazon business. Um, but it's not as satisfying. I don't know what it is. I, for me, having visitors go to my website and click on shit, it's not quite as satisfying as like, I, I think I know what it is. Like a lot of these products I'm picking out, I'm, I'm getting shipped to me. I kind of touch them and, and get them listed on Amazon. Then I'm kind of reboxing them, sometimes putting them in poly bags and things like that. And then I'm sending them in Amazon. So there's a little bit more connection with um, everything that I'm doing on Amazon. So I kind of, I, I don't know. It's just something I enjoy uh, kind of monitoring. And it's definitely to me too, it's kind of my s- second income. Uh, I wouldn't even want to call it a second income for me. It's more of like a third or fourth income. It's probably a better way to describe that. If this, all my, if a hundred percent of my Amazon business went away tomorrow, like they canceled my account and f- put my, all my inventory on fire, it wouldn't, my family would still eat and, and everything. If my website that hosts my main web, you know, websites go down for two days. My family's still eating, but don't don't get me wrong. But I just two days of not making money would be, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds, maybe even close to a thousand dollars. So, from a dollar for to, for a dollar perspective, I'm probably better off working on websites. But I kind of do like to diversify my income a little bit, and that's what this Amazon gives me. And I don't think I finished my point. Um, hours wise, we're not talking about huge hours with what I put in here to get 80,000 in sales. Like I said, in terms of packing and shipping everything out, just a few hours a week. And I think I even kind of calculated that out on an hourly basis. You're probably looking between 30 to $50 an hour. And so obviously, if you're somebody out there and you're making $13 an hour or $17 an hour, that sounds attractive. I will say Amazon probably is better. It's probably better to start off with as kind of a thinking about it as a second and third income and then figuring out your lane on how you're going to scale up. And I've kind of taken the last year to do that with Amazon. Figured out what my lane is, what I can sell on there, what I can consistently source, and what I can consistently source easily and make a profit on because I don't want to spend that much time. And so what I wanted to finish my point was my margin was 13% last year. So I said 80000 in sales, I had 10000 in profit. That's about a 13% margin. So what I decided to do was focus more on my higher margin products, make sure I was always in inventory, make sure I uh, just was selling that product across all the channels, on eBay, everywhere, and get rid of all the little stuff that was just taking time away from the products that I was really making money on. And so I adjusted that towards the end of last year. What I decided to do was just clear out my inventory. Anything that I'm not going to sell anymore or wasn't selling or I'm going to lose money on, just clear it out. Turn and burn. And I think that's the strategy you want to have when you're starting a buying and selling business. If it's like selling cards, I think that's the 
especially with card shops and card card based businesses, I think the reason why a lot of guys either fail or never scale up, never turn into like the mojo break where they start with $438 and then they get to 5 million in, in like a, a very short period, you know, not a very long period of time. Or you're like late in sports cards where you start off, I'm just doing baseball cases. And if we know, I mean, there's a lot of baseball releases, but if you're just doing baseball, there's some gaps in between the products. And now Layton's doing all the sports and doing WWE and stuff like that. And I think that's a great, great, that's how you're going to scale up. And I bet if you asked Mojo Break and if you asked Layton early on, were they holding on to boxes? Were they, were they uh, you know, I'm sure they made plenty of mistakes. And everybody makes mistakes when they're running businesses. Actually, to be honest with you, to go from 500 to 5 million, you have to make a ton of mistakes. So Mojo Break has probably made a magnitude of mistakes. And by mistakes, nothing crippling to, to hurt the business. The other thing I heard that Mojo Break did is they didn't draw a salary or didn't pull any money out of the business for many, many years, several years. And to, to be disciplined enough to do that certainly is another way to scale up a, a very proper and a good way to scale up a business. The other thing that I think would be good in sports card, a good thing to follow your first year, year and a half, maybe even two years, first of all, to specialize. The other thing to do is to turn and burn. So on Amazon, I'm just turning and burning, buying this shit and selling it, buying it and selling it. If it's not selling, liquidate it, gone, buy some, buy some more shit that will sell. Turn and burn, turn and burn, turn and burn. That'll get you about a 13% margin. We'll help you find your lane, find the products that sell. Then I think you can start to focus a little bit more. Your second, third, fourth year, you can focus a little bit more, figure out how, how can I cut the fat a little bit and just eat the filet? And that's kind of what I, where I'm at in my Amazon business. So I'm working even less, working less on Amazon right now. In fact, I just got the shipment I talked about early on the show today was my first shipment in a while. First shipment in over a month. Obviously, I had a baby in between. Didn't really feel like doing anything and during those times. So, but I'm working way less on Amazon. Just focusing on, I would say about the 20, I was probably up to 70, over 100 products on Amazon. Now I'm down to like 20, 25. And my margin is now up to 19%. This is year to date, January 1st to February 27th. I'm at 19% margin. I have $13,000 in sales, $11,000 in cost. I have $2,700 in profit. This profit actually is pretty accurate because it's it's the first of the year I've, and, and most of my costs are inputted here. So my margin is ticks up six points or so. My sales are about the same. Still averaging, you know, about, I call it $6,500 to $7,000 in sales a month. But I'm working less and I'm making more money. And so I think you really could look for that year two. But I think to get to that stage, I think a lot of guys want to be at my stage right off the bat. I want to be just selling the profitable shit. And I, what I, the other thing I was going to say was I started looking back onto my account on Amazon. I started seeing what I sold over the year and it's you know, hundreds and thousands maybe of products. 
And some of them sell for a lot more money. And what, what I noticed is some of the collectible products, not in sports, but really like in the Star Wars realm and some of that, some of that stuff goes up in value a lot, a lot of money. Talking double, triple in value in just a short period of time, like 12 months. So that's what I'm focused on now too, is I, I have all my inventory paid for. I have zero balance on my credit cards in terms of uh, debt that has accumulated over a few months. Um, so I, I'm literally running, this business is, is running itself essentially at this point with Amazon. Took, took a while to get there. Definitely utilized my credit. I think that's another thing. I don't think a lot of new collectors or new sellers realize is you got to utilize credit. And if you're not disciplined enough to do that, and by discipline, I mean, if you have a credit card with a 16, 17, $18,000 limit, and you are tempted to buy things that you cannot afford. And I'm not talking about stuff you're trying to sell. I'm talking about you're trying to buy, buy, you know, from your distributor or whatever, or cards or whatever it is on your credit card, but then you're buying watches or you're buying uh, vacations or you're putting personal expenses on there as well. You're not, you're not disciplined enough. When I talk about using credit, it needs to be used for the business. Now, do I pay my credit cards to zero every month? No. Are there occasionally months uh, last year? I, I mean, I actually am doing my taxes right now. I think I paid, I think I paid like seven or eight hundred dollars worth of credit card interest last year. And you might think, wow, that's a lot. And it is. And it's definitely something I'm looking to cut down a little bit, looking to manage my cash flow a little bit better. I'm not too worried about it. And I'll tell you why. That's because if you count how much I got in bonuses through credit cards, I think on just one card I got, I remember they sent me an email. My Capital One sent me an email and said I got $900 and I think $40 worth of rewards last year. So just one card, the rewards paid for the interest I paid for on all my cards, let alone all my cards. I probably racked up four or five, maybe even $6,000 worth of, I mean, if you sell $80,000 worth of stuff, you're putting a lot of that on a credit card and earning 1.5 to 2% back on each of those purchases. There are times you know, in the year where I'm maybe front-loading some inventory. Maybe I'm buying, like I just bought four or $5,000 worth of inventory. I probably won't, you know, some of this inventory is going to hang around for a while. So when my cash flow maybe wasn't as strong in this business, um, you know, I might let a $1,000 balance roll on a credit card. But that's way better than not utilizing my credit at all or misusing my credit, going and buying a Rolex on my credit card because I just want one, okay, without having the cash or the money to pay for it or, I, you know, putting a Pebble Beach vacation on a credit card. Did I do these things this year? Yes. Did I have the cash to pay for them the minute that bill is due? Of course. Do I always have the cash to pay for my four or $5,000 uh, orders of supplies and, and stuff from Southern Hobby and stuff like that. Not all the time. I'm only going to get a portion of that sell through back. Um, but it's better to utilize my credit, build my account up, get more sales, get volume discounts, et cetera, et cetera, than to sit there and be a collector. Hold on to cards, hold on to stuff, turn and burn, use your credit. 
I think if you're starting a sports card business or a breaking business, breaking, I think there's a little bit of customer service, a little bit uh, of other things you're going to want to have to learn. But certainly with like an Amazon business, even a check on my cards business, turn and burn. Buy and sell very quickly. Buy and sell. Try to have, you know, your inventory turnover extremely quickly. You should be trying to do that. Not trying to squeeze every last dollar out of every sale or every break. I think as you get a little bit older and a little bit wiser, then you can start implementing that strategy. Like, for example, I bought some Star Wars stuff because it's like, you know, Star Wars stuff's pretty popular right now, but we got a couple more months. We're going to have the movie hype. And we'll have Christmas. And some of the stuff I bought is not going to be in stock around Christmas. Okay, These are very highly expensive. I mean, I think my price on some of this stuff was over $100 wholesale. And I think the SRP on some of this stuff is $299. I'm talking about $399. Very expensive Star Wars toys. Very exclusive market for that. There's a decent amount of supply of these things on the secondary market. But they're drying up. Drying up quickly. And so I think you can hold some of that. Some of these McFarland figures you can make money on if you hold them. There's other things. I don't like it with sports. I prefer it with movies and stuff like that. I've even seen it with board games. Board games come out. They sell at one price. There's a lot of supply. That supply dries up. All of a sudden, the board game sells for over SRP. And so I'm starting to play that game a little bit more with my, my account. I'm not trying to turn and burn it on Amazon. It's just like check on my cards. If there's a lot of people with a product, the price gets really competitive and it gets driven down. But if you learn on Amazon, if it's a product that sells through very quickly, a lot of times people all go out of stock all at once. And all of a sudden now you're the only one on Amazon with an Amazon Prime deal. You can jack that price up a lot. I'll give you an example. I have some flashlights that I've been selling on Amazon. Right now, the price is $39.99. My cost on those are about $32. So you're really not making any money if you sell them for $39.99. But for periods of time, the price of these flashlights jumps quite a bit, all the way up to $59.99. And at a $32 cost and only a $3 ship and a, and a, a you know, $4 or $5 fee, you're really making good money, almost $10 a flashlight. And so waiting for those opportunities now on Amazon where it's like, okay, I can hold, I, I can afford to buy $1,000 worth of flashlights, wait until the price is really much higher on Amazon, and then sell those through. And there's sites out there that track all this stuff for you so you can actually see the seasonality of a product and things like that. And it's actually not that difficult to do. If you know, if uh, again, after you kind of learn the process of Amazon, then you start learning these uh, more, more, a little bit, I wouldn't say advanced, um, but certainly ways you can squeeze a little bit more money out of your product, especially when you've got your cash flow uh, really tight and you don't, need, you don't need the cash. I can afford to buy four or $500 worth of Star Wars toys and put them in the closet for six months. I think if you're just starting out, don't worry about that. You should be worried about getting sales, getting customers, getting your customer service down and everything down, 
And then and as a group breaker, I think it's like sorting your cards, packaging it up, getting your stream right, getting your offers and kind of your dealing right. Like if I was a new group breaker, I wouldn't go into repackaging my own product. Like you skip like 50 steps, you know, but I think if you're a fourth year, fifth year group breaker and you got an audience, you got some trust build up. Well, now maybe, okay, maybe I'll do personal boxes or maybe I'll do um, my own repack product or whatever it is. There's ways you can up your business. I think that's an important thing for you just broadly now. If you're starting a business, find your lane. Know where you're at. If you're just starting, there's things you should be doing when you're just starting. If you're just starting, you, you shouldn't be doing things that people that have been in business for 10, 15 years can do. The things Mojo Break or Layton can do with breaks or certain things they can do with their business might not be what you can do as a young breaker. And it might, it goes both ways. Being a new, fresh, uh, brand new breaker or brand new card shop or brand new whatever, Amazon seller, whatever it is, you can be a little bit more agile. You can be a little bit more nimble. You can do some. Di- you can do something that's a little bit different. Whereas if you have a business like Mojo Break and uh, Layton Sports Cards and some of these other guys have been doing it for a long time, or even you go to the retail side like DA Card World and Blowout, and um, you know some of these card shops that have been around a real long time, you know, eventually you find your lane. You kind of hit on cruise control and you keep it going. So figure out where you're at in your business. That's where I would. That's what. I, the, that's the advice I would give you if that's that's kind of what you're looking for. Um, that's about it on today's show. I think what I will. I don't think I've got a big make. I'll tell you what. What I've been doing. Uh, I know that we've got. It's 2019. We're gonna have a year kind of where the Democrats kind of figure out who they're gonna put up as a candidate. I think that's actually gonna be. Very entertaining to watch and see how that kind of unfolds. I think there's a lot of ways that can unfold. And I think how that unfolds will actually decide. It will decide the presidency. Who the Democrats put up will decide how easy or hard it will be for Trump to get reelected. And I see there's a there's scenarios in both 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 ways. So I'll be probably following that a little bit this year, but I'll be honest with you. Uh, I'm kind of waiting for the Trump versus whoever the Democrats end up putting up. I'm kind of waiting for that to really follow politics. I haven't had uh, any, I've I've tried to avoid almost all political news for, for since really the tail end of last year. Just for that reason, I don't really want to get burned out on it yet. Because I, I, I know we're coming into a really cool season of politics, and so I kind of want to follow it uh, when it's a little bit more entertaining, a little closer to Election Day. So the advice I think I can give you is make 2019 your best year ever. I was looking back, and I'm doing my taxes and stuff, and it was like 2018 was like amazing. And I keep looking at my taxes and I'm like, God, I, I was actually thinking I was going to get a, a good tax break 
I, I thought I was going to get a good tax refund, but then I looked at how how well Amazon and my Amazon was you know ten grand. That's still a lot of you, know, you still got to report. I mean, I've got to report eighty grand because a- Amazon sends you a a ten ninety nine or whatever it is. It's not a ten ninety nine. It's something else. But I got a report to the IRS. I made eighty grand from I quote unquote made eighty grand from Amazon. Okay, I know I made only ten grand. But still, that's a lot of money. You know, there's a lot of inputting and stuff like that to kind of whittle that down. And my websites are, are 10, 10 times this. So it was a good, really good year. And I was thinking, God, you know, I, I know I spent some time on the podcast and spent some time on the Internet, you know, talking about Trump and talking about stuff like that. But in comparison, I really don't spend a lot of time. I don't spend a lot of my time tweeting. I don't spend a lot of my day. I don't spend almost, I probably check, I'm probably on Facebook once a week and that's to check the marketplace, looking for stuff for sale, see if anybody has a good deal. Usually I'm looking for tools or materials, wood. I like crystal vases. I like flower. I have a a decent sized yard and uh, flowers bloom. And so I like to cut flowers and bring them inside. Uh, And, you know, I want to make America great again, but I also want my house to look nice. I don't like to put it in ceramic or glass. I like crystal. So I'm on Facebook buying crystal off old ladies and and wood off uh, farmers. You know, I don't really spend a whole lot of my day dicking around on shit that doesn't make me money. Because at the end of the day, let's fucking be real. If you spent your whole year complaining about Trump or complaining about Obamacare or complaining about this, that, or the other. And you make the same amount of money as you did the year before, you're a fucking idiot. If you're spent your time last year complaining about, oh God, look at these corporations getting all this money. Look at all these CEOs making all this money. And I'm over here working three jobs Barely making minimum wage. That's your fucking problem. That's because your skills are shitty. I sit around here, watch fucking basketball. I watch CNBC. I have two kids. We go on a walk every day. We chip golf balls in the backyard. God, I probably read 30 or 40 books to these guys every single day. When they go to bed or they're napping, I'm, I'm doing a project outside. I don't do a whole lot of shit. But I have some skills. I can set up websites. I know more than advanced HTML code. I know JavaScript. I know other languages. A little, a little hint out there. WordPress is awesome. Start making websites not in WordPress and you're going to make a lot more money. For whatever, I don't know what it is, but every website I set up that's not WordPress makes way more than a WordPress. Okay, WordPress blog is great. It's a good way to start. Good way. I mean, I'm not saying you can't make thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars on a WordPress blog. I've done it. Sports card radio is probably, uh, you know, touching seven figures all time. Lifetime income. That's a WordPress blog, basically. 
but I have sites that do double, triple that. And they're now WordPress. So if you really want to improve your skills, and that all came from improving my skills. Watching, I've watched countless YouTube videos, countless YouTube videos on how to code, how to set up websites, how to do this, how to do that. Spent the last year and a half really honing Amazon down. I sell a little bit of my own products, sell wholesale. And so these are skills that I've acquired. If I wanted to get into furniture making, that's probably something I could get into. Okay, just over the last year, I've bought, God, probably three or $4,000 worth of saws and tools and drills. And I've gotten into furniture making, dressers, beds. Not to sell, but for my family. But it's certainly a tangible skill that, uh, that I could make money on if I wanted to. But sitting around and tweeting about how you don't make any money and Jeff Bezos does, or how Trump did this and said this and didn't say this and should have said this, doesn't make you any fucking money, doesn't get you any more skillful. And not that everything that you do in life has to make you money. But if you're finding that 2018 wasn't your best year ever, it's your fault. And I know a lot of you guys, uh, I've got pushback. Oh, you're so rude. And, uh, you know, guys, uh, listen to some other fucking podcasts if you want your balls cupped. You guys buy these redemption cards and then Panini doesn't cup your balls. You, you buy into the 5A2 club and they ask you for another thousand. So you're not getting your balls cupped by Panini and Tops. I'm not going to cup them either. But 2019 really should be your best year ever. And you got plenty of time to do that. And by best year, I mean by everything. Be the best father you can be. Be the best parent you can be. If you're in school, be the best student you can be. If you're under the age of 18, you really have nothing else you should be fucking doing except for being a great student. And if, you know, if you're a guy trying to get laid or something, those are like, should be the only two things on your mind. I think when I was in high school, literally the only things I cared about was playing golf, trying to become really good at golf, trying to get good enough grades to where I could apply to whatever school I wanted to go to and get into. And then getting my D-I-C-K wet whenever I could, okay? Now that I'm older and i got kids, my focus is different. Trying to be a great father, great example. Trying to provide for my family. Trying to figure out a way for my wife not to have to work. But it's a little bit difficult with healthcare. Because we've looked into it and it's... You know, with that, with she can work part time and get full time healthcare benefits. So we're we're hopefully hopefully she's gonna be able to get a job uh, in that sense. So, but twenty nineteen should be your best year ever. Make it your best year ever savings. Just to give you an example, I just tallied up the I uh, every year I try to up what I'm saving. 
do $100 a week in a IRA account because that's about, I think you're, you're allowed $5,500 for the year, I think, in those accounts. So I do $100 a week. And then I usually top it off through the year because I get an extra 300 or so because there's 52 weeks, so you get 5200 there, and then you do another 300 Either Usually I do it towards the end because I realize how much I need to put in there and I kind of top myself off. There's 5500 I do 25 a week into a Schwab account. That's 100 a month. Call that 1200 a year. Now that I have my two boys, I do $5 a week into their accounts. If you're not saving, if you got kids and you're not saving, I'm not saving for college. My kid doesn't want to go to college. They don't have to go to college. But I'm saving $5 a week for my kids. At the very least, I can show that whether my kids get that and then they go blow it on weed or or they blow it on something really cool or, or, or whatever. I don't care. What I can show them is, look, when you were born, I opened up an account for you. I put $5 a week week into it and look how much it is. By the time these kids are 18, 19 years old, they're going to have 15, 20 Gs. And the 15 and 20 Gs is worth something. But my hope is they look at that and say, wow, $5 a week is not a lot of money. And look at what you look what you could you can save up. So if you're not doing that for yourself and or for your family, 2019 needs to be the year you start doing that. I don't give a damn if it's a dollar a week. The reason why I like to do it weekly, it keeps it fresh, keeps keeps you knowing about it. I could do I could just put all the money I save. All at once, right in the beginning of the year. I could just, you know, if it's $15,000, $16,000, I could just put it all in the accounts and, and be done. But I, I really think the discipline, no, the second thing it does is it makes you disciplined in what you're going to buy. If I just had $16,000, and I've had this happen before, where you get a large amount of cash in an investing account and you just start buying shit, I don't think that's really what you want to do. The discipline of having the money only maybe a thousand or two at a time. I usually let it run for a while, build it up so I can buy, you know, 10 shares. Or if you're buying an Amazon share or something like that, or a Facebook share, those are kind of expensive shares, you know, $100 a piece. And if you're only doing $25, you kind of need to wait 10, 15 weeks. Allows you to really think through your investments and things like that. I think that's kind of a side benefit of it. I'll let you decide how you want to do it, but I'm just letting you know I like weekly or like consistent. I like consistent deposits into the account. It keeps you from one making one bad investment that kind of blows up your account. You put five thousand dollars in, put five thousand into the company, and then that company like craft goes down, boom, tanks. So you want to avoid that. The other thing I think it does is it just allows you to stay disciplined in that. It also allows you to say, hey. Man, it's been, you look back and it's like, man, it's been a year where I, I, I do $100 a week. I don't even notice it now. Like in the beginning, it sounded like a lot. Now I don't notice it. Well, now I could do 110. Now I can do 115. You can start upping it. And so that's what I try to do every year. I think I'm up to, let's see, 125, 30, 40, 50. I think I was up to about 160 a week now. I think pretty soon I'll try to get it up to 200 a week that's going into some kind of investing account. 
Make 2019 your best year of all time. It really should be. The economy's doing just fine. And if you need to start turning off things in your life that are distracting you from making it your best year, you need to start doing that. If you know watching CNN and MSNBC and reading Twitter only fires you up because you're so mad what Trump is doing or saying or not doing or not saying, then you need to turn that shit off. You need to turn that shit off and start paying attention to things that are going to progress your life so you can look back and say, yeah, God, I fucking hate Trump, but man, I'm making 20, 20 more dollars an hour now than I did last year. Because I, you know, I took the time and actually watched YouTube and got a couple new sales and now I got a new job. You fucking can do that. Instead, people waste a lot of their time. So hopefully that helps you guys out. Hopefully you take what I've said here and apply it to your own life. But we've said time and time and time again on this show, save your money, be a disciplined Discipline saver, a discipline collector. If you're going to get into the business of sports cards, specialize at first, focus, and scale up from there. If you're a collector, stay a collector. If you want to flip shit, you know, buy and sell this shit. There's plenty of money out there for you. And there's plenty of resources, especially these days, that will help you find what you're looking for. And then finally, make 2019 your best year ever. Make it, and I'm talking about across the board. In school, out of school, with with your kids, with your businesses, with your side businesses, with your job, whatever it is. And I know a lot of you guys are listening. You got jobs. You're commuting to jobs. If you don't like that fucking job, it sucks Get a new one. And let me tell you the easiest way to get a new job is to get new skills. So focus on your skills. And the job that you want will come after that. I remember when, you know, starting this podcast 11 years ago, I didn't have any real experience podcasting. So I started podcasting. And then I said to myself, well... I think there's some way to make, there's ways to make money with affiliate programs and and having a website that people go to. So I started putting, I didn't know anything about really running uh, a content website. I had some experience running some e-commerce stuff through eBay and pro stores and stuff like that back in those days. But I didn't really have any experience running like a content website. So I just started putting shit up, started putting content up. And a lot of ways, uh, getting more skill. I remember in between, the only job I've had over the last 11 years recording this podcast, I had a job for three months. It wasn't even three months. I think it was only about two months I was there. But the only, I want to say the only reason, but one of the primary reasons I got an interview was because of my websites. And the fact that I knew about affiliate programs and could talk about them. I didn't even send, I remember I didn't send my resume to this company, and it's a real company, multi million dollar company. Didn't send my resume to them. Just sent, I remember I sent them, I probably could still, I probably still have the email. 
think they had a the ad on Craigslist, and I sent them like a three or four sentence application, basically. And I think I had an interview a week later. And I wouldn't have gotten that job if I had not taken the time to start a podcast and to start a website and to start learning about that stuff. I ended up working at that company for two months and then leaving knowing that I had learned some stuff at that company that was then probably going to make it so I didn't have to get a job ever again. And that, that has been the case. I have voluntarily been a substitute teacher uh, during stretches of times, but usually just here and there. Um, but that certainly, if you look at what I'm paid to do that, it is, uh, there'd be nobody, nobody eating around here if I, if, I, if I had to rely on a teacher's salary. And the kids at the school actually get a big kick that I pull up in a, you know, an $85,000 Mercedes and I got a $25,000 Rolex and I got a $350 pair of Allen and Edmonds and I'm a substitute teacher. So you can imagine the kind of influence I can have, not necessarily the younger kids, but definitely the older kids, the kids that understand about making money and business and things like that, the kind of influence I can have on those kids. And so that's why I do that, because I can, I can have a positive influence on kind of the next generation business owner or kid that's interested in business. Those are typically the conversations that are kind of the most fun to have. But improve your skills. Get out there. Get some stuff done. You can do it. And um, have some fun doing it. I think that's the most important thing as well. That about wraps it up. Now that we've finished our sports card topics, we've finished our motivational, try to give you a little bit of motivation to save some money, be disciplined in that sense. And God, if you've missed this stock market for just, I was looking at my, my account and it's like, damn. I know we had some, I think on my last show, I was kind of warning you, God, I, I, the stock market's probably going to go down. It'll be rate hikes. And that's exactly what happened. In, in November and December, the stock market had a, 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 fair, a really, really large um, correction. But if you listen very closely to my last podcast, which was months ago, again, months before the stock market went down, I told you it's probably going to go down. But the, in the same sentence, I said, you're not pushing sell. You're not buying and selling shit. Like it's fucking baseball cards. You can have an account like that. I've got, I've got a two or three accounts that I treat that way in stocks. Put, you know, those are the accounts I put sometimes $10, $15 a week in. Just want a little bit of money. Do some option trading. Do some penny stocks. Do some risky stocks. A couple thousand bucks here and there. Not a big deal. Be disciplined is I think the, the key thing, if you're going to take away from this and you're going to be saving money, is be disciplined, put the money away, save it up, and don't buy and sell like it's, the, like it's a you know, Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. 
Because my point was the market went down in December. And if you sold then, you've just missed one of the best moves we've had in the last three or four or five years, just in one month, two months. I think the stock market's up 10, 15% in like two months. Just make sure you're diversified. Make sure you don't have all your eggs in one basket. You've got a nice broad thing. You've got a little bit of cash always on hand. Maybe sometimes more cash than other times. But never go all in and all out, especially in a retirement account. God knows there's people that give that advice out there. In a retirement account, you're never going all in all out. But that's my final tip for you guys today. Hopefully you guys are all having a great day out there. Hopefully you guys enjoyed today's podcast. We'll be back some other time, some other place. Again, I can't, not going to get on here and guarantee when it will be. Remember being uh, probably 10, 15 years ago, 10 years ago when I started this podcast, I had very little money, no money. In fact, I was probably negative net worth. I think my, the Mercedes I drove at the time was 1979 Mercedes, and it was my grandma's and given to me for free. I was not doing well at all financially 10, 11 years ago. But I probably was as happy then as I am now. But what has changed is a, a lot has changed in my life and the shows will become less frequent. But what doesn't change is how much I appreciate you all listening. And I hope you get anything from this, whether it's cards or it just, you might not get anything that changes your life, but maybe I've gotten you for the last hour or so of a of, of work day or a commute. And for that, I thank you so much. We'll be back some other time. But for now, we are out of here.